Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 517. It is a Friday. That means it is call-in Friday. That means it is your show today more than it always is because it is always your show. But today, it's really your show because it's all about you. It's all about your calls, your comments, your questions. And I'm even going to bring in some stuff from some third-party media and a little bit of interaction you guys did with me on Facebook today. It is going to be a great show. I've got some good questions. I've even got a question or two I don't have an answer for. So I'm going to ask you guys to come and give me the answer, help me out with the answer, because I know there's people that have dealt with these uh, issues before uh, that can come in the comments section and let us know what to do about it or how to deal with it. Uh, good thought-provoking stuff today, as always, from this audience, which is great. Remember, if you would like to be on call-in Friday, dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. And uh, maybe you can get on a Friday show. I might start doing occasionally two of these a week. I am building a backlog again. Every time I start to catch up, the backlog starts to grow. I am up to calls from last week, though. So I am starting to catch up to you guys. Keep the calls coming. You're honestly more likely to get on call-in Friday than email Monday. Uh, that's just the reality. Before we get to your calls, questions, uh, and ideas, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and do the rest of our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today is Common Sense Prep. Common Sense Prep is where you go to find all the common sense items that you need for your day-to-day prepping needs. No tinfoil hattery, just solid, good stuff that will help you be prepared for the future. Everything from great water harvesting gear to some really exceptional books from Paladin Press. Remember, if you're a member support brigade member, you get 15% off of those Paladin Press books. And some of those titles are books that you need to have as part of your prepper library. Uh, next up today is KnifeKits.com. New sponsor, but just extended for a full year. They also just chipped in to help out the member support brigade. If you are MSB, you now get 5% off everything at KnifeKits with a special code you will find in the uh, member support area. And what KnifeKits does is so cool because if you want to start learning to make knives and you want to start learning blade craft and things like that, you can get something at KnifeKits that's akin to one of those like easy-to-do snap-together plastic models you had when you were a kid. Or you can get complete raw materials and you can get everything in between. You can get instructional videos and books on how to become a bladesmith. Now to me that's just awesome because this is a skill we are losing in America. And I think a lot of us have affinity with our blades. And it's it's nice to have affinity with something that's unique and that's ours that we've created for ourselves. So check out KnifeKits.com. Next, make sure you check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. You'll find our banner at the website at the SurvivalPodcast.com. Lots of great stuff there. Uh, if you check the videos I'm putting out lately, I'm using, usually wearing different shirts and stuff that we offer in the gear shop. Maybe sporting a coffee mug or something like that. On that note, I put out a really cool video yesterday on Yoder's Bacon. I think I think a lot of people are intimidated or maybe disgusted by bacon in a can and wonder how you get 60 pieces of bacon into a soup can. 
Well, the video that I put out yesterday will show you how they do that and how to use this bacon. And it'll show you that once you uh, open it up and deal with the fact that it's a bit greasy and get rid of that grease, which is pretty simple to do. It can be done in about 40 seconds uh, with a little paper towel and a microwave. Uh, it's like any other pre-cooked bacon product that you would buy, except it costs less and stores for up to 10 years. So check that video out. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. I'll leave it at that for today. I also want to let you guys, remind you guys I'm trying to do a special show for episode 550. I need you to call in and tell me what prepping and the survival podcast of this community have meant to you over the last year or two. How you've changed your life, how you've made your life better, how you've built more self-sufficiency. I need as many calls for episode 550 as possible. Please help me with that. Last, 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 but not least, I want to let you guys know something I keep forgetting to announce. Uh, very good young man, uh, been a long-time listener to the show, is the editor of a magazine called Interesting Times. It's an online magazine published in Sweden, and he just did an edition that features, and this is just crazy to me, features me, Tim Ferriss, and Gary Vanderchuk as the three primary people featured in the magazine. It's about... Two weeks ago, the magazine came out. It was a long time in the works. Uh, my interview's over 20 pages long. Uh, it's by PDF. It's a pretty big file to download, but it's pretty freaking awesome. I recommend you check it out. I'll put a link in today's show notes. There's a lot on survivalism, self-sufficiency, and redundancy. And there's a lot about technology and business in there as well. Uh, because of the type of the magazine it is, uh, maybe some good reading over the weekend. And support this young guy. This kid's 21, I think, 21 or 22. And uh, he's doing something. And he's doing something meaningful. So check out Interesting Times Magazine and my interview. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show and take today's first call. Hi, Jack. This is Linda from South Carolina. My husband and I love the show and discussions we've had together because of those shows. My husband has a motto for you. If you don't listen to the Survival Podcast, you won't know Jack. Anyway, we have a problem. We have an acre yard with about 38 raised beds and 24 fruit trees that are just starting to produce. We had a bushel of peaches this year. Shortly after picking our peaches in July, I went outside one day and saw that one of our trees was gone, totally gone with only about 18 inches of stump and the smooth cut. We were completely baffled and figured somebody had been in our yard causing some mischief. I thought it odd that they took the tree with them. To make a long story short, the ensuing weeks we lost four of our five peach trees this way and two other trees. We finally discovered that beavers were living in the woods across the pond. We'd never seen them, but most people say to cure it, you have to shoot them. Do you have any ideas on how to deter these beavers? They have to cross the pond, go up a bank, under a fence to get to our trees. Thanks for any help. Uh, I said I would bring on some stuff today that I didn't exactly have an answer for, and, and this is one sort of. I have a couple ideas. One, the only way that I can see to keep these things out with fencing is to have fencing that's buried at least, uh, I'd say, 10 inches to a foot in the ground. And I don't know whether that's practical on the fence line where these guys are coming from or not. Other than that, I can tell you that throughout history, the uh, the the noble beaver has been trapped and a a wonderful source of fur and uh, protein uh, for mountain men of yore, uh, going back to the very early days of, of the United States being settled. So while I don't really want to kill these guys, and I think beavers are some pretty cool little guys. 
you may be down to that. Now, you have to check with regulations. Uh, in a lot of places, they're completely protected, and you can't kill them. In some places, they, they are still classified as fur bearers, and they have seasons in which they can be trapped and or hunted. And uh, in some states, you need a fur bearer's license or a stamp that goes on your hunting license for animals that are not classified as game, but as fur-bearing animals for trapping and things like that. So if you do decide to trap or eliminate these guys, you know, that's uh, that's something you really need to check into, or you need to do it very covert, if you know what I'm saying. Um, I'd, hate, I'd hate to kill them. I, I really would. I think your best bet is going to be a fence with... Uh, with a really uh, good, uh, you know, buried in the ground where if they dig a little bit, and, and whatever you can do to make digging uncomfortable. Another thing that I found that helps with digging animals is, okay, you bury your fence even maybe six, eight inches into the ground, and then you go in front of the fence and you dig a trench. But this trench only needs to be about an inch deep. And lay in that trench some kind of cheap grating, like screening or something, something you can get your hands on. Even like, uh, the, it almost looks like chicken wire, but it's designed, it's perfect size for it. That's designed to go across gutters in a little arc to keep leaves out of gutters and then bury that under the ground. And then when something starts digging there, they start digging into that and it cuts their feet and it feels funky and it's just not worth it and they'll go somewhere else. Obviously what you've got is a problem where you don't have enough uh, natural building material for these guys in their dams, and they're looking at those beautiful young three, four-year-old trees that are nice and straight and out in the open, and they're thinking, huh, that'd make a good addition to my dam. And then things like peach trees, a lot of the, they will strip off um, the, uh, the leafy portion of the trees. <clears throat> They'll actually take that underwater and store it. Beavers are a lot like ants in that way. They'll store food for winter. So instead of letting all the leaves turn color, they'll find a nice cool spot. And they'll preserve a tree branch so that they have uh, leaves to eat uh, later in the year. That's another thing that they're probably doing with uh, these trees because they have a, a good food count as far as uh, beavers are concerned. That's one ex ex idea. The only other idea I can give you is an outside dog. And you better get a big, tough-ass outside dog. Beavers are tough critters. Very, very tough. I would rank them slightly above raccoons for toughness. And uh, raccoons are tough. So if you want to, I mean, you're looking for a 100-pound-plus big dog that is going to tear the hell out of a beaver the first time it comes up there, where they're going to decide predator in the area, I don't want to be here. But if you uh, if you get yourself one of those little yippy-yappy dogs up to maybe even 40 pounds, I think you might end, it might end up being beaver fodder. Uh, I cannot overstate the toughness of an adult beaver. Uh, the other thing about them is they're kind of cool. Uh, I remember one time uh, I was fishing at this this creek, not far from here, right here in Ar right between Arlington and Grand Prairie, and uh, all of a sudden I started hearing this bloosh, bloosh, you know, real deep splashing noise, and what it sounded like was somebody hurling off this bridge, big rocks or bottles full of water or something into the water, and I actually got irritated. I was looking up there wondering what kind of ass clown was doing this, and uh, realized there's nobody up there, and yet I kept hearing this, and finally I looked. Uh, in an area where I happened to catch him as he was doing it. it, was a beaver, and he would come up, and he would splash the water like that to be threatening with his tail, and then he would dive under. Uh, so cool guys, hopefully you can make peace with them, but if you can't, they make good pelts, and they're pretty damn good, uh, damn good when you put them into uh, a Dutch oven and cook them slowly as well. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. 
Hey, Jack. This is Clinton, Country Roots City Job from the Forum. I had a question about Mylar bags and uh, mason jars. I know Mylar is used to keep oxygen and light out. And I was wondering about painting mason jars and whether that would do the same thing. Um, I know mason jars are a lot easier for me to get a hold of. I'm not really sure where to buy them, so I just came, you know, the thought came to mind, well, if I paint the mason jar, that'll keep the light from getting in. The mason jar has a lid that seals. That'll keep the oxygen from getting in. Seems like it'd be a a good solution. Just wondering if you had any uh, thoughts or concerns on about doing that. Thanks. Enjoy the show, and uh, appreciate everything you do. Bye. Now, there's a couple angles there that I'm going to address for you. Let's start out with just um, mason jars for storage of anything that you'd want to store in an airtight environment. As long as you're using the you know the, the kind of lids you would for canning and, and dropping a couple um, O2 absorbers in there, uh, you're going to do pretty well. I would not do it without the O2 absorbers. As they absorb some of the oxygen that's in there, uh, they're going to actually create a seal. If you look at uh, Tammy Gangoff's videos from Dehydrate the Store on YouTube, you'll see that when she opens a, uh, a canning jar lid like that, uh, that um, you end up with a, a very good seal, an oxygen uh, full seal. So I would look at using O2 absorbers if you're going to use mason jars. It's for painting them to block out light. It's going to have some effect, but limited. You're going to have a hard time keeping these mason jars from scratching the paint off of them. Paint doesn't adhere very well to slick glass. And uh, you can do it. Nothing wrong with it. But if you were to get yourself a whole bunch of nice, thick cardboard boxes uh, and close them up and seal off any of, like if they have handles and seal those off with good, thick uh, tape over some cardboard and keep your food storage in boxes, you're going to get the same light protection, and the jar is going to give you all of the uh, all of the air protection that you need. But I don't know why it would be easier for you to get your hands on mason jars other than um, than mylar, unless you have them already because they were donated to you or given to you, and you can get them for free. Because if you have to purchase one or the other. Mylar is much less expensive. You could buy a ton of Mylar bags. Very, very cheap. And Mylar bags are easy to seal. You don't need anything special to seal a Mylar bag. You can seal a Mylar bag with a clothing iron. So, you know, storing some food in Mylar, you basically put your food in the Mylar. um, You push out most of the air. You want to actually leave a little bit um, with a couple O2 absorbers in there. You seal that bag uh, with an iron, and you come back the next day, and it looks like it's been vacuum sealed. Because the O2 absorbers will make that Mylar just shrink around the items that you're storing. Mylar's pretty tough. I guess the big thing is when you store things in Mylar, they they need to go into a secondary protective container, something like a 5-gallon bucket or Rubbermaid product or something like that. Uh, And they're more susceptible, obviously, to rodents than than glass or uh, steel cans. Uh, which would be, you know, those are, my favorite is steel cans. Uh, I keep talking about this. People keep asking. It's called the Carry Company. I keep putting links. Gold lined, phonetically lined metal paint cans from the Carry Company. That's the company. C-A-R-Y. The Carry Company. You can order direct. They'll ship them to your house. I've done it. They'll be happy. If you can't figure out how to order on their site, pick up the phone, call their 800 number. They'll price and mail you whatever you want. It's that easy. Uh, they're my favorite for this, and uh, because they are rodent-proof. 
because they're so easy to do. Because since it's food grade, I can throw dehydrated veggies in there, slap a lid on it, and done with a couple O2 absorbers. Uh, it's really simplified me storing all the stuff that I preserve myself out of the garden through dehydration. Mason jars, nothing wrong with them. I don't know that I would waste my time painting them. I would get a bunch of boxes that are designed, you know, with the little egg crate type stuff in there designed for the size jars you're using and use the boxes to block out the light. I think you're just going to be better off that way. But if you're worried about finding Mylar bags, check out Safe Castle and check out Ready Made Resources. Uh, both of our sponsors offer Mylar bags, and there's tons of places online. You can just go to Google and put in Mylar bags, and you can get them in every size and shape, and you can get a big box of 100 for a few bucks. Uh, it's not expensive. Uh, not compared to mason jars. Go look at what a case of mason jars costs. So if, it's, uh, if you're between those two, and it's just you can source the mason jars locally, Don't be afraid to order online, man. Everybody does it every day, and there's some good deals out there uh, from our sponsors and from other good suppliers. Uh, but my number one thing that, that I'm using and going forward I will continue to use is food-grade paint cans. That's probably one of the best discoveries I've made in the past year. Again, the company is called The Carry Company. All right, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, quick question for you. Um, I've been told that cotton kills... And uh, I was hoping you could address that. I've listened to all your back episodes, and I've never heard you address this. Other people have said, you know, it gets wet, doesn't insulate well. But to me, uh, I, I really can't stand wool next to my skin. And the new modern materials such as the, uh, oh, what is that, Under Armour and other shirts, uh, they just don't well wear. I don't think they wear, they wear well. And uh, my fear is, is if I ever get caught in a, anything fire to do with fires, those things will melt and shrink wrap you. And so I know there's no perfect scenario, but if you could kind of go over maybe some things where I, I use cotton in the summer, I'll still use it in the winter. But anyway, if you could just kind of address that cotton kills, maybe some instances of what you wear. Do you dress more for comfort? Do you dress more for thought of maybe something exciting happening today? Uh, anyway, it's just kind of our first line. We put it on every day. Uh, thanks. Bye. All right. Well, interesting one. Um I mean, let's start out with the fact that if you're anywhere in the heat, that your, your cotton's going to actually help keep you alive instead of kill you, that everything is relative to the environment that you're in. And I know people talk about, well, you could have hyperthermia, man, if you just got wet enough. And, you know, I've been wet from my head to my ass when it's 100 degrees out. I ain't even got close to hypothermia. Now, I guess if I'm sitting in cold water, but you can be dressed in wool, and if you're immersed... Uh, you got a problem, maybe less of a problem. You still got a problem. You got to get out. So, in warm weather environments where even the nighttime drops aren't dropping down into into threatening levels, you know, dress for comfort for heat because the heat is a bigger threat in those environments. And I've seen a lot more people succumb to hot weather injury than cold weather injury. So there you go. The Under Armour stuff and, and the things like it. Uh, I actually like them. I, I, I especially as undergarments when you're dressing in layers. I think they're really good at wicking sweat off of you even better than cotton. When it comes to cold weather, you've got to keep warm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the old saying about layers is cliche because it's true. It's because everybody says it because it's the way to be. Uh, so as far as things like wool, wool has a very good property of insulating even when it's wet. And, and that's why it's so well thought of. 
but if you don't like it on your skin, and I understand that, you know, one, there are some cotton wool blends that, uh, that bring some of the softness of cotton and some of the insulation properties of wool and kind of are a happy medium. But, you know, why not wear long sleeve things that are comfortable, uh, on, a, on an inner layer? And then wear, you know, if you need wool, wear wool over top of that. Wool is probably one of the best uh, insulators there is. There's also a lot of garments available from companies like Woolrich and, and very other, you know, other similar things where what you have is like a wool flannel, but the interior is land with, lined with like a satin, so you don't get the itch against the skin. Those are some other options. But kind of the best stuff out there to me is the stuff that's uh, Gore-Tex insulated. It's waterproof. It breathes. It's warm. Uh, the the inner lining of it is never you know heavy wool type things. Uh, it's probably the best stuff that I know of. Is all the stuff with Gore-Tex and Thinsulate. Um, when it comes to really cold weather like parkas and stuff, I like things that are uh, fur filled. I've got an old jacket that was given to me by my grandfather, um, a hunting coat, and it is actually stuffed. Uh, I don't know where he came up with this or where he got this thing, but the uh, the lining, you can't really see it. It's in between the layers, but inside it is actually caribou fur. And it is the warmest damn thing I've ever seen in my life. And apparently caribou fur is hollow like straw, and that's part of why it insulates them so well, and that's part of why it insulates you so well. Uh, but anything like, um, I've, I have a good friend that has a coat, that's basically uh, made from deer leather, and it's got the deer fur uh, as a line. Now, again, the fur is kind of sandwiched, and his coat, I would say, is as warm as mine made from caribou. Uh, there's a lot of options out there. You do not want to rely on cotton, 100% cotton in cold weather, because there's a reason they say cotton kills, and it's because in a cold weather situation, if it gets wet, It, it does what makes it so beautiful for hot weather. Weather It wicks that moisture off your skin very, very quickly, and that creates a cooling effect, which when it's 90 degrees is wonderful, and when it's 10 degrees is life-threatening. So you, you got to kind of find a happy medium there. Best I can do with that, if you want to post their favorite cold weather gear in today's show notes, give this guy some ideas and include links. I'm not going to consider it spam because you say, here's Cabela's where I bought mine or here's Bass Pro Shops or whatever. Uh, interesting question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack Carlton here. I'll skip the pleasantries other than to say thanks for doing all the great work. So straight to a pair of questions. Uh, agricultural exemptions. Uh, I know places try to crack down and keep you from getting them. Any thoughts on best things to do to maintain or get agricultural exemptions? Uh, not exactly closely related, but uh, thought, question, thought on micro-communities. Uh, not communes, but let's say a bunch of people, uh, if parceled land, uh, wanted to avoid being annexed by a city. Can you create like a micro-city uh, of local survivalists? Think of a alternative to the Free State Project, but a thousand times smaller, uh, in order to avoid being annexed by another city. Is uh, that something anyone's ever researched? That's all. Thanks. Bye. Okay, uh, two questions. First one, going to be real easy for me to answer. I don't know. Uh, I've never gone through the process of trying to get uh, land agriculturally exempt. 
Uh, my understanding is there's two big tax breaks. One is when you're buying stuff, you don't pay sales tax on it, or at least a lot of stuff you can buy without paying sales tax on it. And the other is you can get a pretty good break on the property taxes on the property as well. Um, I would think that the biggest holdup to getting agriculture exemption is going to be with very small plots of property and you're not producing enough. I've heard from some of our listeners that uh, I've heard numbers thrown around like $700 a year in uh in revenue as a minimum. So I think it's going to come down to investigating anything that's specific to your locality and county, uh, whatever comes from the state level or the federal level, and making sure you comply with it. And I bet you it's not as hard as you think it is, so give it a shot. Now the second one on like a mini free state project, never really thought of it that way. That's interesting. Let's look at a couple different ways of doing this, because I think it's cool, and I think it's something people need to think about. Maybe it's an alternative to these uh, survivalist groups that I, you know, community-owned land, and we're going to buy 500 acres, and, and there's going to be 20 of us, and, I, and it always ends in, you know, um, disaster and destroyed relationships because of differences and disagreements on how and what to do. Uh, because the, the nature of liberty itself should be that each man does as he pleases, but then deals with the consequences. But that doesn't mean that neighbors aren't there for each other as long as everybody's willing to pull their weight. So this would be an interesting way to do this. So let's look at what you're saying. What you're saying, what I understand you saying, first of all, is basically, let's go find a piece of land, an area that's unincorporated, that's not really provided with a lot of services. Let's move into that area, let's settle it, uh, by buying up the privately owned land, and let's kind of vote ourselves separate from the system. Let's say we are now the town of Survivalville, which is probably a terrible name, but it illustrates the point here. Or Liberty Town would probably be a much better name and illustrates the point even better. And we are Liberty Town, and we run our own city government, and we'll comply with the county, but city folk, all the rest of these cities, stay the hell out of here. We have our own laws. right. I guess you could do that, but I think there's probably a lot of hurdles to it. Let's look at another way to do this, though. Let's look at what the Free State Project is really doing. The concept of the Free State Project is they look for a couple things. And if you're in a Free State Project and I get this wrong, you correct me. But this is because I haven't really researched it deeply. This is how I see it, though, from the outside looking in. Let's find a state with the most liberty already so we don't have as far to go, the most like-minded people there already so we can make the biggest impact with the smallest number of people. And if we stick to a small state... You know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people can have a bigger impact in New Hampshire than, let's say, a state like Texas, where we have 6.2 million people in Dallas, Fort Worth alone. 20,000 new people in Texas has a very small effect on the state as a whole. All right, 20,000 people in New Hampshire, that has a pretty good size effect, especially when it's already so liberty oriented. So we find a liberty oriented area, we find like minded people, and we move there, and we take over. At the state level. That's that's what I see in New Hampshire, right? So if, if we move a million people to New Hampshire that are libertarian-minded, survival-oriented, one, we know that the national election is how New Hampshire is going to go, right? We're going to start voting. You know, they're, Those guys are going to start voting for people up there like, you know, I don't know, Ron Paul, right, or some libertarian candidate or something. Cool. But that only has so much of an effect on one state, but... What that enables a state to do is stand up with its population and say, hey, federal government, tell out. We're going to define ourselves under the Constitution, and we're going to limit federal authority within our state. And we're going to do everything we can at the state level to encourage liberty. 
Let each man do as he pleases, as long as when he swings his fist, it does not hit the other man's nose. Right? Could you do that much quicker at a township or city level? So instead of finding this vacant land, what if a bunch of liberty-minded people found a little town or a little city, a little sleepy suburb somewhere, that already had a government structure in place, had a relatively small population, already leaning toward where they want to be anyway, and moved in in mass, built their little towns and stuff around the city, and took over the city government level, or even did it at a county level. Could you do that? Yes, with limitations. The state has a lot more power against the federal government than a city or a town does. Okay, um, If there's a state law that says you have to comply with something, it's impossible, impossible from my understanding of the law, for you to come up with a township law that says you do not. right? The township, the city... The county can further restrict as long as it's a constitutionally based restriction, but it can't unrestrict. The only authority that I know of that can say, no, we're not going to enforce that here, is the state authority, with one exception. It's one thing to have a law, it's another for it to be enforced, And if it's an unconstitutional enforcement, then you can go with the sheriff. So if you took over a county like this and put in a sheriff like Sheriff Mack or like this really great guy from Nevada that I featured on the show not too long ago, um, maybe you could do it at the county level and make a big impact. But I do like where you're going with this separating from a normal survivalist or liberty group Patriot group, instead of a bunch of people on a compound just moving into an area and having enough um, vote, <laughs> enough votes, sorry for folks kind of coughing today, having enough votes to, uh, to starve off any kind of annexation or something, I like that as well. Interesting idea, and I'd like to hear from some of you guys that are part of the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Are you doing this there? I never thought about it, but are you basically targeting townships and counties For, to, to make headways, to create beachheads and spread out from. I'd love to hear about that. Interesting idea. I do think that the idea overall is far more, um, how do I put this, far more doable, useful, and likely to preserve relationships than a compound approach. I, I, I cannot overstate how opposed I am to you and 10 beer-drinking beer buddies All deciding your preppers together, going out and finding a hundred acres and buying it as a group. You want to subdivide it and everybody gets a piece? So maybe you make the group purchase, but immediately thereafter a lawyer cuts it up and each has his own piece? And you're all neighbors? Fine. That joint ownership shit will end in misery. I promise you. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is David Hicks from Alabama. Two quick questions. One... Uh, we bought some Mountain House pork chops because you said you liked them so much. But it's such a big thing, and it says they need to be done within a week. Is it possible to divide those up and put them in uh, those gold line paint cans with some oxygen absorbers or um, vacuum pack them or something like that to make them last longer with just the two of us around? And the second question is, what uh, do you think about long-term storage of nuts, like pecans and cashews and things like that? Is, is there some trick to doing that properly? Keep up the good work. Thanks. 
This is another one with a lot going on in it. Let's start looking at this. First of all, I want you to understand that while I'm all for if you buy a bunch of number 10 cans of something, open it up one one day, trying it and seeing if you like it before you buy any more. But day to day, if you've got number 10 freeze-dried pork chops, you've paid three times more for that than pork chops from the grocery store. And you've purchased it because it will last a long time. You've purchased it because it is store and forget to a degree. Maybe five years later you start pulling out a can every once in a while and eating it and doing a little bit of rotation and replacement to keep that long-term storage life. But those products are specifically for long-term storage of product that does not need refrigeration. So it's not something that you should have to deal with often. When you do, the first thing to get is that any manufacturer of anything that you put into your body is going to have a huge CYA clause. They're going to cover their ass. The day you crack that can open, they lose 100% control over what you do with it from there. Now, they're advertising that the, the storage life kept properly of some of these products is 10, 15, even 20 years. All right. So now you've taken this perfect environment and you've destroyed it. So they don't want you to ever be able to come back and go, well, it should have been good for three months because you said it was good for 10 years and I opened it at two years and God, three months would be reasonable. So part of that is a CYA. The other part though is what they've done with this is they, you know, freeze drying is the most expensive and best way to preserve food known to man. Uh, you know, it, it really is. Um, but it requires certain things to keep it in that state. And one is absolutely no moisture. And two is an oxygen-free environment. And three is no light. If you can restore that, you will get some longevity back to the storage of the product. But it will probably will never be the same. Because just by touching it and all, you're going to introduce some moisture to it. So one thing you could do is use you know, um, latex or, if you're allergic to latex, similar uh, synthetic gloves. Uh, when you're, you know, using any of the product that's not going to be used immediately. That'll help oils and moisture from getting on it. Putting it back in the, you know, like paint cans, like I mentioned earlier, and, and O2 sealing it, it's good idea, probably just fine. I would err to the side of, once it's open, if you're not going to be done with it in a few weeks, put it in the refrigerator and keep using it until it's gone. So the best thing to do with these big number 10 cans when you're going to open them is do it around some kind of a picnic or something like that. Uh, trust me, your, your guests will not know uh, when you throw a bunch of these pork chops on, on the grill that it came from Mountain House. They, unless you tell them, which is kind of interesting to tell them after they're done eating. Um, but there you go. I mean, it's just really not that big or critical of a deal, but it's never going to be what it was. And that's the manufacturer covering their, their rear end. Uh, vacuum sealing them in, 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 you know, some kind of a, a plastic bag, you know, vacuum, conventional vacuum sealer, toss them in the refrigerator. They're probably going to last as long as you could ever want them to last. They might last longer in that refrigerator than they will in your garage in the can even after they've been opened. But it, it all comes down to understanding that you need to know why the food stores well in the first place. And that's no light, no oxygen, no moisture, and reasonable temperature. If you can recreate that environment, you're going to have quite a bit of storage capacity. But don't be open in these things like, you know, 
all the time in replacing your groceries with them. They have a purpose in that they have that long-term capacity. So maybe you open up a can and try them and use them up to determine, do I want to buy a case of this for long-term storage or not? But this is not a day-to-day use product. Okay, your next question on long-term storage of nuts. Most people are going to tell you that your 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 storage capacity for nuts and seeds uh, that, that for, for edible purposes uh, you know, is going to be about six months and, and maximum a year. Because they have oils, and the oils become rancid. And once they become rancid, they don't taste good, and they're not good for eating anymore. I have stored pecans. I have stored cashews. I have stored um, uh, almonds. I have stored filberts for two years, vacuum-sealed in dark, uh, re- relatively cool environments. And when I opened them up, they tasted just fine. I've never tried to push it past two years. It would be my personal limit. I think one year is probably sufficient. You know, nuts are something that are really good to eat. They're a great thing to include in your diet. So are seeds. So my belief with nuts is you you seal them again in that oxygen, you know, depleted, dark and cool environment. And but you that's a that is something that's for everyday use. You know, if we if we happen to come, we get lucky, and somebody says, "Hey, we got a huge you know bounty of pecans. Come on over and bring a few five gallon buckets, and we go shell them all." Uh, we'll, 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 we'll store them. Usually, I have been, uh, I have been up till now taking windfalls like that and vacuum sealing them. I would now start using my, my paint cans just because I, I like the method better. It's simpler, it's faster, it's quicker, it's easier. Uh, but, you know, we're going to label them and date them and they go into the Harvest 72 system and, uh, we're rotating through that stuff and we're using it. So nuts, I would, you know, don't see them as a 10 year product. So your madhouse stuff's a 10-year product. Your nuts are a one to if you do it right and perfect and cool, uh, cool temperatures, dry, light-deprived, stretch out to maybe a two-year product. So there you go. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Steve. Um, I love the show. I'm a new listener. I've just caught up with all your backlog. And I recently moved to the U.S. I want to establish my life along the lines of self-sufficiency, even though my work will draw me mostly to cities, but from what you said, that doesn't matter. Uh, I've lived in two countries before and never had any credit or debt. My question is, now that I'm in the U.S., should I get a credit card to establish a credit rating? I've been asked for it even just to pay energy bills, and I'm wondering what other obstacles I'm going to come across that I will need a credit rating for. Were I to get a credit card... I would not go into debt. It would be purely to establish the rating. Never before have I spent anything I haven't already earned, so I don't think there's any danger of that, but I'm wondering if a credit rating is something that's really absolutely necessary for living in this country. Thanks. Uh, look forward to hearing your thoughts, and uh, keep going with the show. Well, first of all, welcome to America. Thanks for coming here and uh, bringing self-sufficiency and self-reliance uh, and a new member of the country, man. Thank you for, for being here and being part of this. Um, next up, I need a credit card so I can get a mortgage. Is the primary reason that people tell me why my stance on zero credit cards doesn't work. Uh, you know, We can get around everything else, but damn it, you're not going to get a mortgage on a house without a credit card. My answer to that is bull. Shit. Here's how you get a mortgage without a credit card. You save up at least 10 and better off 20% of whatever you think your budget is for a home. 
you identify a bank that underwrites its own mortgage, you go there, you deposit said 10 to 20% into their bank, and you say, I would like to get a loan from you, and I would like to use this money, which I have just deposited into your bank, Mr. Loan Officer, to act as a down payment on that loan. And you have at least another 3 to 5% above that in reserve. And you have good employment and income proof. And then Mr. Loan Officer says, let me see what I can do for you. And he underwrites you a loan and he gives you a mortgage. That's how you get a mortgage. Now, are you going to go get an FHA 3% down mortgage with uh, with no credit rating? No. You probably shouldn't get one of those to begin with, though. If you'll save up the money first by renting way cheaper, if you're going to have a $1,200 house payment, think about if you go and rent an apartment for $600, then you damn well better be able to save $600 a month. If you can't, you cannot afford a $1,200 house payment. That's $7,200 a year. Two years into that, that's $14,000. That's 10% on a $140,000 house. You can find a great starter house if you'll look outside of the trendy areas and the house hunters bullshit uh, $440K, especially now. So it might mean a little bit of deferred gratification, but that's how responsible spending works. Since you've been doing this your whole life, you probably have plenty of money saved up anyway to do this with. And since you've probably come from the U.K. based on your accent, you probably have money that's worth more than our money. You can convert and get almost a two-to-one exchange on. So you're probably in great shape. I won't lie to you and tell you there'll be no places where you'll have any issues. But... If you go to your bank, open up a checking account, get a Visa check card or a MasterCard check card that acts as a credit card but draws against your checking account, uh, most of them can be alleviated. When you go to get a cell phone, you might have an issue with that. You just whip that out and here you go. And as long as there's plenty of money in there, which you should have more money than you need week to week and even your checking account, you should be good to go. Um, If a person says, I need to build credit, I absolutely have to have a credit card, but I'm not going to spend on it, I'm not totally opposed to it, but here's the problem. It won't do much for your credit rating unless you use it. All a credit score in this country means is that you've been dumb enough to get into a lot of debt and you've been able to pay for it up till now. That's how you increase your credit score. You have two houses instead of one and you make both payments, your credit score goes up. You get two credit cards instead of one and you get them to increase your credit limit and you push both to about 50% and you make your payments every month, your credit score goes up. You don't need a credit score. There are challenges, but money fixes them. And here's the unique thing. If you stay away from credit, you end up with money. That's just how it works. So the solution to the problem is provided by avoiding the problem in the first place. No, you don't need it. No, I wouldn't throng you if you went out and got a you know a Visa card and stuck it aside and never used it. Uh, but I wouldn't. Not at this point. Uh, I no longer have any credit cards. Um, period. The only credit cards we have are actually bank cards. And for those that like points and miles, you know what? There's actually banks that have check cards that give you points and miles. So instead of writing me about how you get points and miles or whatever rebate or bullshit like that, go find a bank that does that if that's important to you and use your checking account that way. And, uh, you know, the merchant fees, I guess, pay for that because merchants pay 2 to 3 to 4% to take those cards. That's how they make all their money. It ain't just the interest they charge you. That's how they can make money with a bank check card. So credit rating, I wouldn't sweat it. As long as you're going to live smart and continue to do things the way you've always done them. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Scott from Southern Illinois. 
I'm kind of interested in what you plan to do once you get out of your property in Arlington and get settled in Arkansas. Since your bug-out location is becoming your primary residence, do you have any long-range plans for picking out a new bug-out location? If so, how much would you want to develop this new site? I mean, ultimately, would you want a carbon copy of what you've done in Arkansas, or do you not go that far with it since you never plan to fully relocate there? Just interested in what your opinions are on this. Maybe other folks with good primary locations would be, too. Thanks for the show. Take care. Well, short answer is I'm already shopping. Uh, I'm online every day looking for parcels of land within two hours of where I'm at up into the uh, the, the northern reaches of the Washita Mountains and into uh, the uh, the southern Ozarks there uh, and everything in between. I want to keep the distance around two hours because when I do this, I want to be able to get there much more often than we've been able to get to our place that we have now. I absolutely will not develop it to the level that we've developed our our, uh, our primary bug out location right now for a couple reasons. One, I always saw the Arkansas location as a perfect fallback location. It's the kind of place I would want to go in a major crisis anyway. Since I'm not preparing for the end of the earth to crack in half and road warriors and things like that, I'm preparing for change adaptation, and potential global-scale disasters that have cycles, which are all the reasonable things that we're most likely to have to deal with, uh, the location I have is is a place where my propensity right now is, if it's bad, I'm bugging out. When I get there, my propensity is I'm bugging in. Where would I go that's better? But there are still things, and there are still the eventual calamities that are even worse that could cause you to need to fall back even from what looks like an ideal situation. So we will set up a second one. We will do this for a variety of reasons, though. One, because I believe in investing in rural real estate, specifically land. Two, because I would like more land than I currently own. Three, that if I do it too close to home, it's not a good fallback location, so I need to put some distance into it. Uh, four, because I'm a hunter and a fisherman, and if I can set up something that's a good hunting fishing camp, especially if I can set up something that I can go and have as my own hunting land, I'm going to do it once I have the financial freedom that getting myself free of this city life is going to afford me because we owe next to nothing left on that property up there at this point. We owe less than most people would when they went out and bought a new car. Um, and when we sell this house, we're going to do everything we can within six months to pay it off in full. We will be at that point completely 100% debt-free. And that, that frees up a lot of resources when you're not just debt-free from a consumer debt, day-to-day, day-to-day debt standpoint, but you're also even debt-free with the house. That's a, a different type of life, especially with the low cost of living that we'll have up there on top of everything else. So I'm going to do that for a variety of reasons. My intention is to develop it with a lot of... Um, very rustic permaculture principles from a standpoint of, of uh, food-producing trees, bushes, and vines. Absolutely no conventional vegetable gardening. Farm forestry, if you will. Some land sculpting for water retention so that it can go on without me taking care of it. Possibly some, Possibly a well. A well is a big thing on any piece of land. It gives you water beyond even if the land has surface water. That's an investment I would be willing to make. Uh, bringing in enough if I can get great electricity to it, it's the easy answer. It's what I would do first. If I cannot, which is highly likely that I will not be able to, enough solar to run a well and a few light bulbs and a small camp and a very inconspicuous area, something that if you walked by it, you might not even notice it was there. 
lots of signs to stay stay out, or will be you'll be shot and eaten by dogs because those are more effective than gates um, because people don't know if it's actually abandoned. And signs that threaten death generally have a better effect than a fence, uh, just so you know. Um, as little to be taken or destroyed left there as possible. We own an RV. We may go to a larger RV. So if we had to fall back, that gives us a tremendous capacity to haul stuff with us in a fallback. The issue, though, is this land is more about having an escape and an investment than a true second bug allocation. If society ever breaks down to the point where we are no longer safe at our place that we've picked out for ourselves, to be safe, you're going to have to follow those people that have already bugged out the places like the middle of nowhere in Idaho and Montana. That's what it's going to take for this place to become unsafe. So we don't need it. But I feel better having it, and I see the investment potential. And if we can create something that has the potential for hunting and gathering, we increase. It's more about increasing our self-sufficiency. Because if I, you know, I live in a county in Arkansas, and many of the counties around me where you take five deer a year, that's a lot of protein. Uh, improving small game habitat for squirrels. If I'm lucky enough to find something with water on it for waterfowl, there's a lot in fish. There's a lot of additional food, especially protein sources, which I'm not big on livestock. Uh, I like a little bit of livestock, but here's my thing with livestock. I like to travel. If you stay home, livestock is wonderful. It's definitely a huge part of a permaculture system when you integrate it properly. But someone's got to take care of them. I can automate, automate watering. I can automate so many things. It's hard to automate cleaning chicken poop and taking care of rabbits and making sure that they're bred right and all of the other things that go with livestock. So our livestock will always be a minimum. Our main protein that we'll be able to produce for ourselves is going to come from aqua, aquaponics with fish because fish, I can automate a lot of fish. I can automate a ton when it comes to fish care, at least where I can leave for a week. So we need a way to gather protein. So instead of depending on just the national forests and stuff that are up there, having a place where we can gather that as well, and having a place we can just escape to. Um, and I don't mean escape to run away. I mean escape just for tranquility. And having, you know, instead of a man cave, I want a man plot, right? I want to be able to go up there, set my RV up, and spend a weekend up there when Dorothy and I have had enough of each other and need a couple days apart. Or I want to take her up there when we need a couple days away together. Uh, so that's my plan, that's what I'm doing, and I'm already shopping for it. I don't think there is anywhere I would live that as long as I had the means to do it, I wouldn't have a second piece of property. Because it creates a redundancy for things beyond the road warrior end of the world. You can lose anything. You can lose it to government, you can lose it to fire, you can lose it to disaster, you can lose it to corruption, you can lose it to seizure. Having a second place to go always a good plan for a variety of reasons. Great question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, I discovered your podcast recently. I've been trying to catch up on back episodes. Man, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, I had a thought that I wanted to share with you. If you could get people to try to eat what they have stored, I know folks that have hundreds of pounds of plain white rice hundreds of pounds of beans and maybe have never cooked it before or have not put any other spices back. And you know they talk about the monotony of eating the same stuff over and over again. 
I also know folks that have hundreds of pounds of good hard red wheat but don't own a grinder, have never cracked it, have never cooked with it. If you could if you could talk about that, I think that's such an important point to get out. Oh, my name's Bill. I'm in Texas and I'm enjoying it. Thank you. Yeah, it's something we've talked about a lot. It's something I should probably just bring up once in a while to make sure that all the new people that are coming on board or haven't listened to all the past episodes have heard. Uh, it, it's hugely important. And let's, let's break it up into a couple different things here. Uh, we had a caller call in and, and, you know, buying something like a Mountain House, uh, freeze dried pork chop. Uh, that's designed for long-term storage. Well, if you like pork chops, you're gonna be okay with that. You know how, you know how to cook a pork chop. You're gonna take it out and rehydrate it and cook it like any other pork chop. So, that's one thing. But like this guy's talking about here, a lot of people, because it's inexpensive, and it's a way to lay up a lot of calories and nutrition very inexpensively, are big on pasta, rice, beans, and grain. And with those four, you can lay up a hell of a lot of food very inexpensively and for very, very long-term storage. Wheats, uh, hard red wheat like this guy's talking about, the storage life on that is virtually infinite if it's properly kept. The same with beans. Dried beans can outlast you if you store them right. You'll be dead and somebody will be able to cook and eat those beans and they'll still taste good. Somebody will be able to put them in the ground and grow them if they're the right variety when you're dead. That's, that's how long those things last. But again... If you have all that stuff laid up and all of a sudden you have to cook it and you don't know how, you've got a problem. And if you're going to have to live on it for three or four months for one reason or another, then you really got a problem. So, the beauty of rice, beans, pasta, and grains is it's easy to buy them in, you know, half pound or one pound increments. Buy it, use it, try it. I am going to give you guys a, re- a way to cook rice that is going to solve all of your problems with sticky, gross rice that doesn't come out the way you want it. This was taught to me by my business partner, Neil Franklin, a guy that worked with me on producing the Valerie Asinoff videos and things like that. And uh, just this guy's like an amateur gourmet chef, honestly. I mean, this guy's amazing in the, the stuff that he cooks. And he's like, well, why do you have so... And he's British, you know, why do you have so much trouble with rice jock? And I'm like, you know, it gets sticky, it never cooks right, even if you steam it, it doesn't matter. And he goes, throw it in the pot, boil it like it's pasta... When you take a piece out and you taste it and it tastes like tender, like pasta, dump it in a colander, rinse it with cold water, and heat it up when you eat it. Because you'll rinse all of the excess starch off of it, and it won't be sticky, it'll come out perfect. I've never made rice a different way, ever. When we're talking, you know, not minute rice here, we're talking about, you know, regular, you know, rice. Uh, I've never made rice in any different fashion since uh, Neil taught me that. It is the best way I know to cook rice, and it will make your rice dishes come out a lot better. Again, boil it like pasta, strain it in a colander, rinse it off. Everybody that I tell this is like, really? You can do that? And when they try it, they're like, oh, it's amazing. It's your, it's your way to make rice. It's not my way to make rice. It's Neil's. So I, I guess what this guy's saying is really important. There's things, you know, beans. Beans generally have to soak overnight, or you can usually boil them in water and let them then soak for an hour and then cook them. You can't just throw beans. Uh, about the only dry legume that you can just throw into a pot and cook are lentils. And lentils are a good staple for your long-term storage as well. But learn not just to eat these things. Spices, seasonings, and herbs, big thing that you want to lay back as well with those stuff. But learn to be creative with them. Learn to do things. You know, rice and beans is kind of, uh, but if you have some saffron, and you do kind of, uh, let's say about 70% rice to a ratio of about 
30% black beans, somewhere in that ratio. And uh, you do the black beans so you don't cook them down until they're, they're, they're mushy and soupy. You do them so that they're you know nice and still and full together. And you take uh, the saffron and add that to your rice and flavor your rice with that. And a, cu- a can of, uh, of chicken breast. And you put that chicken in at the end because it doesn't really need to cook long. And you kind of, uh, then you get yourself a little bit of um, chicken stock or chicken bouillon. And you add that to your rice as you're cooking it with your saffron. And you put that together. All of a sudden you've got a complete meal, including protein, because rice and beans are not a complete protein profile. Whoever told you to that, that to your face lied to you. Um, especially if you can do some things like bring in some canned butter or canned cheese, especially butter is good for cooking with to bring in some fat and bring that fat level up where you're looking at survival food here. Now you've got something that tastes good and just experiment with it. Don't go out and buy a thousand pounds of beans. Go out and buy a pound of five or six different kinds of beans and cook with them and learn to use them. Same things with pastas, right? The same things with rice. There's different varieties of rice. There's a big difference. Between, you know, jasmine rice and some of the Arabic rices. Learn, because the variety may seem subtle, but if you're down to living on it, it's important. So definitely learn how to uh, to use these foods, cook with them and use them, and buy small quantities first, and then figure out the ones that are best for your needs, and go in long, long, large quantities, because... Unlike the sealed mountain house, I think the five-gallon bucket of beans, when we're out of beans in the pantry, we go out, we open up the bucket, the gamma seal on the bucket, we take out a couple scoops, throw in an extra O2 absorber, put the gamma seal back on, and when that bucket's almost empty, we bring in a new bucket and fill it up with new stuff, and we rotate it through. We do use our storage of rice, beans, um, grains, and pastas, our large-volume storage of those things, For day-to-day use. We do eat what we store, store what we eat with those. And you should too. They are a middle ground between commercial long-term storables and daily storage deep pantry stuff. They're your bridge between the two. So make sure you're using them and you know how to use them. Great stuff. Uh, Now I want to wrap the show up with something a little bit different. I want to start out with, I'm going to tell you something I posted on Facebook and Twitter yesterday. And some of the responses I got. I'll tell you what I think about it after we hear a little piece from Informed Citizen News, and then I'll come back and tell you what I think. And then I've got something else from Informed Citizen News about a girl that is my hero of the month. Before that, though, let's take a look at what I put out on Facebook yesterday and some of the responses that came. Um, the, the story that I put a link to is typical mainstream media bullshit, PR, public relations for the economy is getting better for the current administration. And it's the tie, it's on ABC News Money, and it's called Data Hints, Economic Soft Patch, Maybe Easing. I'll put a link. You can read the whole article for yourself. It's three pages long. But here's the upshot. Unemployment got worse. People buying houses went up. Okay. In the same period of time where unemployment continued to become a bigger problem, if you read the whole story, it actually talks about a somewhat uh, waning of the overall unemployment percentage, but that's because of people, they're calling 99ers in some states, they've been on for 99 weeks, and it expires and they go off, and they're no longer drawing, but they don't have a job yet. But when it comes down to it, new jobless claims went up in the same period of time that more people bought houses. And I simply posted on Facebook and said, hey, what do you think? Here's uh, a few answers. Uh, Lehman Shaw says, less jobs, more houses being bought. 
You have it. Ha haven't we just gone through a version of this with subprime mortgages? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you don't have a job, how do you pay for a house? Another person says, government subsidies, FHA, in my opinion. Things are not getting better with upcoming tax increases. Things will get worse. Uh, Keith says, um, less jobs plus more people buying houses equals more foreclosures. Check my math and see if I'm wrong. But in my town of Toledo, Ohio, less jobs plus no way to pay your mortgage equals houses abandoned everywhere. That's what I'm seeing. Maybe Obama's, let's continue here, been hanging out in the wrong part of Martha's Vineyard. Um, Fred Kerr says dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay from the song uh, Dennis says houses are being bought by foreigners interesting uh, I'm skipping some of these you can read them all if you go to the, uh, the survival podcast uh, Facebook page TJ says I bought my first house because I didn't see any future in handing money over to a landlord with house payments I saw the opportunity to own something the payments were not that much more than I was paying for rent house number two is costing more but I'm in a better position in life now Um, Charity says, I think people are buying homes real estate because they think it's a safe place to invest their money in these turbulent times. Um, David says, my wife works in real estate and she's seeing a lot of people with money buying HUD homes to rent out. She just processed four homes that sold for three to four thousand dollars. Uh, people still have to live somewhere. They just aren't going to own where they live. We're seeing the reversal of the housing bubble. Great time to be a landlord and make that first million for those who have a job or money. And HUD homes are where the landlord buys the house and the person living in the house rents it, but they pay a little tiny bit of money. And this is welfare where the government makes up the difference in the rent. So the government's paying the landlord in that scenario. Let's read a couple more and there's tons of them. Uh, it means the government is subsidizing housing more. Jennifer. We'll see about that. I have an interesting thing to play for you here. Uh, Philip Gergeson says it means the gap between the poor and the middle class is getting bigger. Um, Shannon Moore says if anything that real estate is finally starting to hit its true market value instead of reflecting the bubble market prices. Um, Steve says fewer unemployed and claims because they're falling off the rolls. We're still trillions in debt. Washington taking up another stimulus. Something has to change. Um, Aaron says, could this be part of the boom before the bigger bust? Maybe. Uh, so there's what you guys are thinking, a whole bunch of you. This is why I like Facebook. I put that out and I got all those responses in 20 more in about 30 minutes. That's why I think it's a great communications tool and a great place for collective intelligence. Before I tell you my analysis of this, um, I didn't plan this, but I was looking, I always like to look at Informed Citizen News each week and see if there's a piece I can bring on the show. And this just happened to be their kind of synchronicity. So let's hold up for a second and let's listen to this piece again. This is called Informed Citizen News, available on YouTube, and I recommend you become a subscriber to their channel. The FHA, the Federal Housing Authority, an agency created to help low-income people buy homes, began subsidizing multi-million dollar condo apartments in New York City. New York City buyers can now borrow 96.5% of the price of a new $800,000 to $3 million condo and have their loans insured by the government. Developers are selling this opportunity to anyone who will listen. The housing crisis has not even run its full course yet, and there are those who are already repeating the same mistakes, lining up the taxpayer to step in if things go south. There's an old saying, you know, when you say something stupid and you go, yeah, I heard it too, to acknowledge that you said it. And I almost feel that way with this, even though I'm not the one that said it. Um, I had to listen to it 
twice because it just wouldn't go in my head. And I have my theory, still my analysis on this thing, but a few $3 million dollar purchases can make housing you know, rebounds look better uh, real quick because the $3 million dollar condo, that's like $10,000, dollar houses in the economics of it. Uh, it's like $30,000, you know, single-family homes from a gross financial standpoint. The FHA was designed to help people that are lower middle class buy a house is now subsidizing 96%, 96.5%. That means you only need 3.5%, you need more than 3%, you need 3.5% of a mortgage to buy real estate for extremely affluent homes in New York City. Well, that could be a reason for this report. Again, I'll put a link to the report. Here's my other analysis of this. I think everybody's right. Everybody I read in this, in this ICN report and everybody's differing opinions are correct. Here's what I think is going on as a large scale. One, real estate has dropped to a point where it is freaking cheap. And when things get cheap, people buy it. There are a lot of wealthy people buying houses to become uh, landlords. And when I was working with Donald Trump's organization for their marketing back in 2005 and 2006, not everybody was blindsided by this crash. Trump predicted it, said it was coming, and said that it's going to be a good time to be a landlord. It's a good time in a couple of years going forward to learn how to do it because there's going to be a lot of opportunity there. If you can make some money and put it aside, you're going to be able to make a lot of money. So if Donald Trump saw this in 2005, 2006, other people did too. Like people that listen to him. So there's one thing that I'm absolutely sure uh, is going on. Another thing that I'm absolutely sure is going on. A lot of young people who have been sitting in apartments for a very long time are going out and finding out that mortgages aren't as hard to get as we've been led to believe. I hear all the time, mortgages are impossible to get right now. And I always ask a person that says, did you try to get one recently? And they're like, no. I'm like, how do you know? If you have a good employment, good income, good debt ratio, and I hate to say it, a good credit score, you can go get a mortgage right now real easy. If you have money for a down payment and you go to a bank, like I said earlier, that underwrites its own loan, you can go get a mortgage pretty daggone easy. I've seen some houses lately in the Dallas market sell in three days. I know Dallas is doing better than a lot of places, but I've seen them sell in three days. Most of the houses that are sitting and have been sitting for a year or more are sitting because they're overpriced. They were so overpriced that even once the bank takes them back, they're not willing yet to come low enough for correction. Where houses have corrected, people are buying now. Just like I said they would. What did I tell you in 2008 before the crash? Get ready. Save your money. Eliminate your debt. The whole world is about to go on sale. That is a quote. You can go back and listen to my early editions with the crappy audio. You will hear me say it multiple times before the crash happened. The whole world's about to go on sale. Be prepared. Some people were prepared and they're buying. But this is the other thing that's going on. This is the underlying lie. Just because people are buying more homes doesn't mean that there's less homes in foreclosure and sitting vacant. All it means is that there's a huge inventory and people are finally buying some up. It doesn't even mean that more aren't going into foreclosure than are being brought out of it on the other side. 
It just means that more people bought houses this month than this month last year. That's it. It doesn't really mean shit. That's what's really going on. So, there you have it. The government subsidizing multi-million dollar purchases. Um, rich people that saw the opportunity and were prepared to take on it. Young people who are moving into houses because they cannot afford to. And the employment picture and the economy of itself still going downhill. And everything still sucks. But the press is going to paint this as being some kind of victory. Now, to end Friday on something that will give you some real hope for change. Remember hope and change? I'm going to give you hope for change. And those of you parents out there who have elected to homeschool your parents, or homeschool your parents, homeschool your children, I think kids probably do help school their parents too when they're homeschooled. I think parents learn as much as kids do. Anyway, uh, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, because I, I, I fully support what you're doing, but I think if we had people like this young lady you're about to hear from in charge, you would be less likely to have to homeschool. I think if we took this young lady, because she's a, doing a valedictorian speech from high school, That's what you're about to hear. You're about to hear excerpts from it that were part of ICN. I will put a link to her full speech. It's over 10 minutes long. Please go listen to it today. You're going to listen to her tear the education system apart at its ass. And I want you to go watch the video because I want you to watch the uncomfortable educators in the background shifting in their seats while this young lady is speaking truth like I have never heard from an 18-year-old girl in my life about our education system. The guts it took to stand up and do this. This girl is not hero of the week to me. She is hero of the month, maybe hero of the year. I have so much hope for our youth after hearing this young lady speak. Let me let her talk and I'll come back and wrap the show up for you. Finally, here is a clip from a high school valedictorian speech. The star student, despite having been pushed through the assembly line, has a different take on public education. We recommend watching it in its entirety. Yeah, here I stand, and I'm supposed to be proud that I have completed this period of indoctrination. I will leave in the fall, and I will go on to the next phase expected of me in order to receive a paper document that certifies that I'm capable of work. Between these cinder block walls, we are all expected to be the same. We are trained to ace every standardized test, and those who deviate and see light through a different lens are worthless to the scheme of public education and therefore viewed with contempt. H.L. Mencken wrote in the American Mercury for April 1924 that the aim of public education is not to fill the young of this species with knowledge and awaken their intelligence. Nothing could be further from the truth. The aim is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level to breed and train a standardized citizenry to put down dissent and originality. That is the aim in the United States. The saddest part is that the majority of students don't have the opportunity to reflect as I did. The majority of students are put through the same brainwashing techniques in order to create a complacent labor force working in the interests of large corporations and secretive government. And worst of all, they are completely unaware of it. I am now supposed to say farewell to this institution, those who maintain it, and those who stand with me and behind me, but I hope this farewell is more of a see you later, when we are all working together to rear a pedagogic movement. But first, let's go get those pieces of paper that tell us that we're smart enough to do so. <laughs> did your Friday just get better, or if you're listening to this weekend uh, over the weekend or on Monday of the following week, did your day just get better? 
Mine did. Uh, I hope yours did too. And if you really wanted to get better, um, go to the day's show notes. Uh, you'll see a link uh, for this young lady's entire 10-minute speech. And go not just listen, but watch it. Take 10 minutes out of your day. Pause and reflect. and Listen to what this young woman is saying. And I'll tell you what. If I had my druthers, I would take this young girl before she goes into college and gets further pushed back by the system, and I would give her independent opportunity to run a school system, and I bet you I could drop this young woman into the crappiest school system in America, and if I empowered her to make change, I bet she could make it one of the top schools in the United States today. I don't know where standardized scores would come, but I know how educated the children that came out of them would be, and I know that we would be educating students to become citizens instead of drones. People like this give me hope. You ask me why, in spite of all of the doom and gloom that I'm forced to stare at every day as I put together these shows, I remain such an optimist because of the human spirit and because of young people like this young girl. And I'll tell you what, I would love to have this young lady on the show. If you know how to reach her, let her know Jack Spirit would like to have her on this show to interview her about what's wrong with our education system and how we as a people can correct it. Because if we don't make things better for our children, what are we surviving for? And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for